Hello, my name is Carrie, and I will be having this conversation with Rafi for the New York City Trans Oral History Project in collaboration with the New York City Public Library Community Oral History Project. This is an oral history project centered on the experiences of trans identifying people. It is February 26, 2019, and has been recorded in Brooklyn. Hi. Hi. Um, well, what's your name? Rafi. Uh, what's your age and your pronouns? I'm 34, and I use they, them pronouns. Um, how long have you been in New York? A little over 15 years. Uh, what brought you here? Uh, well, I was born and raised in Brazil, and I wanted to get out of the country. You know, that's the nice version. But I guess the real version is I got here through political asylum based on violence for sexual orientation that was experienced in Brazil. Did you know, like, was it hard to get here? Extremely hard to get here. I mean, I'm still in the process. It's not over yet. So I have been trying to get citizenship for actually more than 15 years because I applied for it before I was actually here. So maybe what, 17 years? And I still have at least three more years, so you know, maybe 20 years I will get it. And then, is it expensive? Oh yeah, you know, immigration is a business in this country and pretty much in a lot of countries so it costs you money to get your finger printed it costs money to get your work permit if you lose your work permit they don't send you a replacement card you have to pay for a whole new one not to mention you know lawyer fees and just filing fees ends up being I have an estimate that I have spent so far about 20000 on everything, and it's still not over. That's crazy. That's a lot of money. And you know, I'm paying taxes. I have been paying taxes since I immigrated here, so there's also that portion of collecting money of immigrants through taxes and not giving us the benefits. Like unemployment or... Yes, no, no, no unemployment. No unemployment, no social security, no. Yeah. Yeah. So, business. Jacked up system. Um, would you describe your gender? Yes. Um, trans and non binary. Um, how do you. Are there certain things in your appearance that make you feel more at home in your identity. Mm. Yeah. Okay, if I were to be more specific, let me be transmasculine, non-binary. So if I want to be more, a little more specific. Um, well, now I have sort of a beard. <laughs> kind of. It's getting there. So that makes me feel really good. And I've, my face has changed a lot since I started testosterone, which is going to be 
two years soon. Um, my body composition has changed a lot. I've gotten thicker, more muscular. I really like that. And my voice, my oh my god, my voice was got so happy when it first started dropping. So I think probably that was the first immediate change that just made me feel so much more in my skin. Yeah. Um, well, that was going to be my other question of has has your presentation and comfort level with yourself changed in the last couple of years? Yes, it definitely has changed. Um, well, before I started officially transitioning, I think I was already making some of those changes with my hair and clothing. And yes, so I think, you know, it wasn't like a sudden change. It took some time to change. Um, but yeah, my hair has changed. I guess clothing choices have somewhat changed too. Changed how like it got shorter, different color, longer. <laughs> the audio interview. Yeah, his it's um. I hate to fall into the binary terms, but it's definitely more on the masculine side of clothing choices. You know, I still wear a lot of, I don't have a lot, I've never had like a lot of colorful clothing. I only have like a few of those, but I still wear them, which is great. Uh, I like vibrant colors. Um, it's not like my palette of colors have changed. It's just the type of clothing that I choose now I tend to be more masculine. But you know, um, now recently I've been getting into some makeup, which is cool, some eyeliner. <laughs> so that also has changed because I never wore a lot of makeup when I presented differently anyways, and now I'm actually like enjoying it, so it's pretty cool. Do you feel like there's less of a pressure now or do you feel more freedom now that allows you to do that? I feel like I'm just more of myself now and before I was perhaps doing it because of social pressure of what a female presenting person is supposed to look like and definitely some pressure from family I would say you know my mother in particular to just be like you know it would look so much prettier if you had makeup on <laughs> and kind of like passive-aggressive things like that um, and now I just get it to do it for myself which is great so. um, your comfort level in a queer space versus a trans only space or like a, a space with like lots of cis people like. oh yeah that's rough even within the queer, the queer community yeah okay if we're talking about like queer cis environment is that the question yeah mm -hmm. um well i've experienced a lot of transphobia within the queer community and i actually would, used to be pretty ignorant about the whole thing myself 
when I just identified as, well, first lesbian and then queer. So um, I tend to feel very less, much more, much less comfortable within queer cis spaces just because of the amount of ignorant things that I have heard from queer cis people and trans folks use usually are just left in the back anyways um, even today I was talking to this queer person and they said what are your preferred pronouns you know very well intended <laughs> and I was like well you know it's kind of like you don't ask someone what is your preferred name it's just mm -hmm. your name it's who you are it's not what you prefer to be or who you prefer to be mm -hmm. so you know it's um it's it's gonna take some time so i i don't feel particularly safe i would say in a way and even within trans place uh spaces especially the trans binary folks also there's there's some gap that happens i think the folks that are non-binary tend to have the grayest of the areas and be more misunderstood and are more subject to all sorts of microaggressions and violence because we're just so in between that for a lot of people is very it's much easier to be like oh i understand why you transition from quote-unquote male to female that makes sense to me but like this non-binary thing I have no idea mm. you know so um, even within those spaces it's complicated to navigate a lot of times yeah what does being non-binary mean to you it means being in between that's what I really like even though or in addition to presenting more masculine because that's how I feel comfortable in myself. I still don't identify as a guy or a man, especially. That word is pretty bloated to me, man. You know, I tend to like, I get, it feels a little endearing when I hear like, dude, you know, or <laughs> sometimes even bro, but not like the bro bros. <laughs> not, a bro. not a bro bro you know <laughs> just like a cute bro <laughs> uh, so being being in between not identifying with the binaries is what I feel comfortable in myself yeah. um, and so you talked a little about being in trans communities but a lot of those spaces can be white Mm. Um, can you tell me about your experiences with trans community or Arab queer community? Mm -hmm. It's very true that queer and trans spaces tend to be more dominated by white people, but that's not a surprise because white people tend to have access and resources more easily than a lot of POCs do, and it's very hard for us in general to be able to foster and create our, I guess, own s spaces for, again, lack of accessibility and just, just so much more trauma and violence that happens. But um, 
in New York, I feel more lucky because there's more access to those spaces that are POC-centered and queer-centered, and then if you go a little more trans-centered. Or there will be events at least once a month where I can sick the trans POC folks of color and feel validated and seen. Um, but yeah, they do tend to be more white and then I feel like I always have to pick which part is more pat palatable pat palatable to the environment. So if I even attempt to explain or express uh, you know my Arabness, then that becomes some sort of issue where it can be easily dismissed or disregarded or not taken into account or white folks will um, talk over you and not prioritize voices of color within that environment um, and that can feel very frustrating of course and I mean if you also put immigration stuff I have you know with more of my layers added to them which is immigrant then that's even more complicated to hold conversations or find commonalities between all of those with so but it's just, the gap is just so big. Yeah, I think you had mentioned actually once a, several months ago about, uh, well, queer folks feel a lot of kind of ways about gay marriage, but uh, I think you brought up a point about gay marriage and immigration. Mm -hmm. uh, do you want to talk a little more about that? Yeah, so, you know, I come from a social justice space, let's put it this way. I come, Activism is a big part of my life. It's always been a big part of my life. And as someone who's pretty radical, I can, myself, being pretty radical, um, I don't completely disagree with the fact that, you know, we, in this pursuit of rights for LGBTQ folks, there was a particular... Um, emphasis on marriage and he got a lot of criticism from more radical folks as being well aren't we just conforming to heteronormativity and cisgenderism by focusing so much on marriage and while I see a validity of that as an immigrant that's pretty essential for my existence to be able to be here and that's how I got my green card was because then gay marriage, LGBTQ marriage had been approved, so I was able to marry my partner at the time, who was a citizen, and then I could stay. And if that hadn't happened, I would have been deported because I did get a deportation letter. So if none of those efforts had been put, then a lot of immigrants, what opportunities would they have but to maybe fake some marriage with some straight couple and that's uh, with some straight person and that's pretty violent that's kind of like not the purpose of community within our lgbtq folks like we want to we want we want to give people the right to be themselves and then subjecting folks who want to immigrate here to have to pretend 
to be straight. Yeah. <laughs> That's kind of the opposite of what we're doing. Um, so, yeah, I think there's a huge gap that a lot of more radical queer folks miss in that sense because they're not taking into account immigration voices, immigrant voices, yeah. Yeah. And um, before you came to New York, like, were you aware much, or uh, actually, when was the first time you were aware of, like, trans folks and trans community? Oh, that was a long time ago. Yeah. Probably when I was a kid, maybe around age five or so. Um, my mother used to work at a place <laughs> when you would call it a bad quote quote neighborhood <laughs> by white people, which means there were a lot of folks of color and there was a lot of prostitution and some of the prostitutes were trans folks. And my mother in there, <laughs> it's uh, so ironic Maybe we'll get into the family portion of it at some point. But the irony of this is that my mother befriended or the trans folks befriended my mother because they thought I was the cutest kid in the world. <laughs> so they actually would walk me and my mother from her work to the parking lot, both of them. And they were like pretty tall and intimidating. Uh, just to make sure we had some sort of like protection, I guess, to get from where we needed uh, to go to. So that was my first contact, I would say, with trans folks, which was, wow, they're really tall and really cool. <laughs> <laughs> and they want to protect me. That's great. Wow, that's interesting that they're protecting me. Yeah. Yeah. Look at that. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, you were going to tell us about your your childhood. Yes. Well, I mean, I guess... Yeah, my family growing up? Yeah, what was your family life like growing up? Light topic. <laughs> um, well, my mother was a single mother. She got divorced when I was one. I've never met my biological father, except at his funeral when I was 18, 19 maybe? I don't really recall it, maybe 18. Um, my mother got involved with someone else when I was six, from six to 13. And he was an alcoholic and used to beat her up physically, yes, and I grew up with a lot of domestic violence and uh, seeing a lot of substance use, in this case alcohol, primarily, yep. So it wasn't a very safe or stable home or family structure. Um, and what's your relationship like now with your family of origin? 
pretty inexistent, I would say. Uh, I haven't talked to my mother in almost two years. I completely cut her off my life when I came out to her as trans, and it was pretty ugly. Uh, well, before then, we've always had a very complicated relationship because of the past, which rippled into the present and future quite a bit. Um, after that, she also got involved with another alcoholic who then sexually assaulted me, so that was also that part. Um, I still talk to my grandma, who I love dearly, and she's, she's here in the U.S., also in New York. So her and I have a good relationship, and she's the only family I have. And how did your grandmother um, respond to your transition? Oh, it was great, actually. <laughs> um, so when I first came out to her when I was 13, she completely accepted me. She just said she wanted me to be happy and loved me. And then when I came out to her as trans at 33, um, <laughs> she was like, oh, so that means you're going to have a beard now? <laughs> and I was like, hopefully. <laughs> and she was just like, okay, can't wait to see it. You know, she was told me she really loved me. And I didn't see her for a while. Um, before, I mean, when I, when I first came out to her and then I didn't see her for a while and I started tea, so obviously I had a lot of changes once I saw her again. And the first thing she told me when she saw me in person was, you look so happy. So that really meant a lot to me. So you speak a lot of languages. <laughs> yes. Um, so how, how is it navigating gender? and other languages or with your grandmother? Yeah, that's a great question. Thanks for asking that because people don't think about this enough. Uh, yeah, I speak quite a bit of languages. My mother tongue is Portuguese because I was born and raised in Brazil. Um, and, well, explaining the whole non-binary thing from my grandmother was quite challenging and it was challenging for me personally to wrap my head around what I I I took a while to go for the day down because it didn't feel natural to me let's put it that way and I think it is because in Portuguese you don't have a neutral term everything is gendered like Spanish for example everything is gendered so the concept of neutrality quote-unquote, or having, like, a gender-neutral or in-between. It's just not... It's so interesting because if you don't have the language, it's almost like you can't... You don't really feel it. You don't relate to it. So it was very complicated for me to get my head into that space. And I slowly kind of forced myself into the day them. It felt very clinical to me. It felt very cold um, but once I think the more I dove into it, the more it made sense. 
because then I was just like, well, you know, I'm thinking in English, I'm navigating in English. So I kind of have to compartmentalize my brain a little bit and I guess my identity in a way in a little, a little bit to be able to fully go into it. Um, but it's very complicated talking to my grandmother about it. She uses he, him for me, which is really cute and validating in a lot, in a different way. Um, cause she was just like, well, I'm, I'm just gonna call you son. And I was like, oh, that's really cute. Okay, I'll take it. But if it hadn't been any other person, I would be like, no, absolutely not. You know, but it, it's very sweet coming from her. So I feel like it can be quite challenging to think in non-binary ways for people who don't have access to that language. And I always wonder how we can make more space in the queer community, particularly um, for non-English speakers, too, to be able to feel more seen and more validated in a lot of ways um, because language is such part of who we are and it's culture and it's everywhere. So being able to give support to folks whose primary language or mother tongue is not English would be really awesome. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so let's see. Speaking of support and misgendering, uh, well, maybe I was just thinking of misgendering. How do you cope with being misgendered? Hmm. Different ways, depending on who that's coming from, I guess. So, you know, there are tiers of <laughs> how you cope with being misgendered. I think now that I have a beard and that I am read most of the time as a cis guy, for the vast majority of society, if I get heed, it's not a big shock to me or I don't get pissed because I just don't have the energy to be like, oh, actually, it's they them because I don't really care. And in a lot of ways, it's secretly, weirdly, dualistically validating. It's just very complex, you know, because masculinity is such a big portion of my identity, but it's not all of my identity. I still feel validated, even though I want to be like, no, it's not that. <laughs> but when people call me man, I get... I. I, I can't. I get very upset. I, I want to be like, no, I like, don't like this word at all. Um, if it's friends who have met me pre-transition and they misgender me with the gender that I presented before my transition, I get very, very upset. It has happened a few times. Um... It's just, I'm like, it's just, it's just, you know, just, just validate me. I know it's, I know it's complicated, but it's very, very hurtful. And I, the best way that I can cope with it when it comes from 
someone that I love, like a friend, for instance, I would just try to talk to them as compassionately as possible because it helps me to be kind to myself also by being kind with them. So I'm kind to myself as well. Um, but there are people who I don't tolerate that from. Like, for example, my mother, it just became so much that I was like, I can't, absolutely cannot. Because interestingly enough, I read an article that came out recently where they did this research that four out of five people intentionally misgender a trans person. And I absolutely believe that. So, yes, that's, um, I absolutely believe it because like, I saw it, the whole thing with my mother and just a few folks that were close but not really close. And I always wondered, are you just doing this intentionally to, to destabilize me? To well, I just, and that research was like, most likely, yes, they are. Um, Yes, yes, people are unbelievable. Um, you know, I hit the gym, too. That keeps me very um, in touch with myself, and then I can let it out on the weights. And art is a big form of expression for me, so... And talking to other trans folks about it, it's probably the best coping mechanism because then we can just validate each other and rant about misgendering with each other so I would that's my favorite probably yeah do you have experiences with um, mental illness or coping with like a lot of stresses do you do you want to talk about how you cope with like stresses and things that are impacting your mental health? Is this, are you talking mental health particularly to the fact, particularly tied to my trans identity or what? There, well, there's you as a person and that encapsulates you as a trans person, so. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. I think queer well, communities have No freaking kidding. Yes. I mean, how could we not? We oftentimes, our families just turn their back on us, and that has created me definitely a lot of mental health issues specifically tied to that portion of rejection tied to my gender or my sexual orientation. Um, Therapy has saved my life many, many times. And I really believed in it because it works for me. And it's something that I like to recommend to other queer folks if they can have access to it. Because talking to a professional about all this trauma that we carry as queer and trans people and beyond our queerness 
as people of color, as, I don't know, all our multiple identities that we have is key to my well-being, to my mental health. I need to be able to talk through the feelings. I need to be able to navigate those emotions. And a lot of those emotions have involved really hardcore things like self-harm and suicide and eating disorders and tons of insomnia. That's, oh my God, that's all. A lot of insomnia, absolutely. Um, so it's no wonder that we do have extra mental health issues because getting turned away by your family is generally it's not that great at all. And that tends to happen a lot. Um, community healing is also a great way to cope with that. Being surrounded by other queer folks that are have experienced similar situations than you have or are feeling not that great about their mental health and they're trying to break the stigma of mental health and what does depression look like or just validating each other for getting out of bed when it seems like such a easy task. You know, to be able to be with people who want to who would understand that and not be judgmental is also a great form to cope with mental health issues um yeah i think community healing is really powerful and there's there's a twist to that right or there's a catch-22 to that too that i do feel like as queer community, we tend to embody our trauma so much that it also sometimes, being in those spaces can feel a little bit like a toxic relationship in a lot of ways because it just becomes so much trauma and it's all about trauma and this is just so much that I do have sometimes to just like step away from it a little bit yeah. you know um, so there's also that kind of like relationship or bonding to through trauma which is beautiful but also can not be what you need Sometimes, sometimes you need to bond with people not because of trauma oh, necessarily. Okay. Yeah, and I feel, I feel like there is a lot of bonding through trauma within the queer community. And I'm talking not but just romantic relationships. I'm talking about friendships or any, yeah. any type of relationship, really. So, I, yeah, I have to watch for that, too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? I think so. Like, so if you say bonding through trauma, like, if you're, you realize you're communicating with someone who's been through some similar experiences and then you, like, form a, like, a strong emotional connection because you've both been through. Through this trauma. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm not saying that's not a good thing. That can be a good thing if you know how to navigate that relationship in a way it's just I've, I've had 
this is kind of like a weird example, but you know, when, when you're depressed and then you bond with other people that are depressed and then you talk about that depression, sometimes you need to bond with people that are not in that mind state as well to be able to cope through your things. Yeah. And I do feel like as queer people, we do tend to feel immediate attraction or we're like, oh, you understand how I feel, oh, you're that. But the other person may not be in the position to actually like help you mentally. Yeah. So there is some, I, I, it's just my personal experience. I had to kind of watch for myself that I'm not getting too involved or dependable or any of that with folks who are also in need just like I am in need. It's good to go talk it out, but some, sometimes I have to ha have some boundaries on that. Yeah, because it can kind of compound both your suffering right. with their suffering. Yes, exactly. Just a big, it's a big mess. Big, big the suffering ball. Um, have you, uh, like before you had community to cope with, did you cope in other ways? Like, Well, I guess you touched on a little bit of behaviors that you used to engaging yeah I mean definitely healthy and unhealthy ways um, drugs for one of them yeah uh, I've never I've never been like hooked on drugs I don't have that kind of I get a little scared, I guess, with the tendency of being hooked into substances pers personally because of my upbringing growing up with someone who was. Um, but I have had my share amount of experimenting with them, and I have used them in ways that felt very specific to just I didn't want to feel anything or I just wanted to feel something different. And there's a danger to that, even though I wasn't hooked on anything per se, but there's still mentally it felt like I was dependent on some substance to just be able to get through the day sort of thing. Um, exercise was a big high for me. It still is in a way, but healthy now before really wasn't. It was just a way to cause myself physical pain and then feel good and then overexercise and basically destroy my body in in a way because of overexercising. Also coped with some eating disorders. I briefly mentioned I was anorexic for a long time and also bulimic and just basically wanted to kill myself through that form. 
of coping, you know. It's kind of like, it's a very interesting coping mechanism because you're you're kind of disappearing in a way to be able to be seen, you know, because you're con it's like your body is consuming itself and you're getting smaller and smaller, but really all you want is just to be seen. So it's kind of kind of a mind fuck because you're you're kind of shrinking into your own self, but really I just wanted to be seen, you know, I wanted to be like bigger and a, I wanted people to see me, but what would when you say you wanted to be seen, like what would that have looked like to be seen? To be accepted. Uh. To not have to cause myself pain to the point where like my body was so freaking thin just to be able to get some attention to be like hey um here you know um i did some cutting too when i was a teenager um Nowadays, I, there are better ways for me, such as art. I did art too before, but now it's much more present in my life to be able to do that. I express myself through poetry, music, visual art, dancing is great. Very, very good. Um, yeah, and just aromatherapy stuff <laughs> spend the time with my dog yeah. and with my partner yeah those are good good ways to spend time um let's see. I guess uh, I don't know if I asked like when did you when did you first start realizing that you might be trans or like what was like that connection was there like a spark or like mm -hmm. yeah funny enough for me it started by changing my sexual orientation that was like my first move into it I guess uh, I was I don't know 30 maybe not 29 and yeah because i was married then yes yes well i was it was in a monogamous relationship for five years and then maybe at year three i was in therapy to to deal with my mother and that was just one day it was it's funny because you think it's like oh i woke up and then it was this thing but i'm sure it wasn't it just felt like it was <laughs> but I literally woke up and I remember going to therapy and I was like Steve I don't know what's going on I just find everybody attractive <laughs> every single person I was walking down the street and I was just like wow you're so attractive wow you're so attractive wow you're so hot and you know like Everybody, and I mean everybody, trans, non-binary, like folks I hadn't necessarily thought I would be attracted to because I was pretty much only attracted to like female presenting 
people and I was like I'm attracted to this guy I don't know what's going on I'm just everybody's attractive to me <laughs> I was like I think I might be pansexual <laughs> that was a big gap for me you know that was that was big because I yeah I pretty much identified as a lesbian and occasional queer i'll be attracted sometimes to some dudes you know but very rarely uh -huh. wasn't really my thing uh -huh. and then i was just like i think i'm pansexual i don't know what's going on yeah and also like my sexual desires started to change i was like is this too this is gonna be tmi oh i don't know. I mean, they didn't mention anything about. Yeah. yeah, I just, I just, it just came into a you know. It was like, wow, okay, maybe there's, maybe this is something trying to tell me something about myself. And yeah, the things I wanted sexually also started to to change. Now I want to explore new things, and then. I thought about it for a long time, and I thought, started talking to it in therapy, and it was a huge mind fuck because I was like, fuck, I, I think I'm trans, and it's bad because it's trans mask, and I don't want to be a guy, yeah. and I have so much issues with patriarchy and fuck toxic masculinity, and now, like... I want to be a guy? This is fucked. Like, how can I reconcile all of that? So then I had to ask myself what masculinity even was. What does that even mean? And is masculinity inherently toxic? Or, you know, is there a difference between masculinity and toxic masculinity? So I did have to unpack even all those ideas that I had about masculinity that may not have been really what I believed in and they were probably a lot of it due to trauma and I didn't want to investigate a lot of them because of trauma but then I was forced to because I was leaning on that as part of my identity and it was a really mindfuck to be able to reconcile all of those things in my head. Um, and then once I also understood the non-binary portion, that was also very complicated. <laughs> but it made it easier in a way, I guess, because I was like, oh, wow, okay, I don't have to. You know, because when I first started thinking about it, I was like, oh, fuck. Like, I think I want to be a guy guy. Like a man. Like a man. And I was like, whoa. But I was like, there must be another way because that doesn't feel comfortable. <laughs> there must be something in between. And then, yeah. Then it's like, oh, my God. Okay, yes. I feel good about this. Yes. I can ease into this much more. I feel I feel it. It's speaking to me. It's speaking to me. But it, it was a huge identity crisis. Like I, it was almost like who the fuck was I? You know what was I doing? And then I started thinking, 
wow, did I suppress this this whole time? Like since you were a kid? Since I was a kid? Was I coerced into just adopting a different... (laughs) You know, I started thinking it was like I coerced into thinking that I was who I was because of societal pressure, because of the way I was raised. And like if I had, even when I immigrated here, this is the funny thing, right? When I immigrated here to political asylum, I had to prove to the government that I was a lesbian, right? So I really, yeah, they make you... Like pictures? There were pictures. Like graphic pictures? We have to be kissing other women, yeah. Huh. Uh, and the whole interview process, they ask you a lot of straight-to-the-point, invasive sexual questions yeah. to make sure that you're what you're claiming, that you are a lesbian. So, like, so describe to me your first girlfriend sexually, what happened when you first had sex. Do you have to tell them about having sex? Yes. And she also asked me who was the man and who was the woman in the oh relationship. God. Oh, my God. Do they understand what? <laughs> okay. Apparently not. No. But, you know, I got so hooked into, like, or I got, I, I had this, like, I have to be a good immigrant sort of mentality that I do feel like I suppressed a lot of my sexuality and gender expression throughout the first maybe eight years or so immigration because it was so severe. It's like I have to be this one version of myself. And I really leaned a lot on the femme side, which was completely unusual for me mm-hmm. because I that interview, like, who was the man who was the one? I was like, wow, I can never have this happen again. I really have to... I really want to be this lesbian who's the good lesbian, you know, who's going <laughs> to conform to the cis expectations. And she's just going to have long hair and people would be like, I can't even tell she's a lesbian, you know, <laughs> that kind of image. So I could get through this ridiculous interview process and immigration process. So I do feel like I suppressed a lot of who I was to fit into this immigration expectation for the first eight years that I was here. But, you know, I did wonder all of these things. It's like, what, was I always trans, you know, or did I have the desire to explore that? And I just couldn't, you know? But at this point, it really doesn't matter because here I am now. And I am so happy that at 33, I decided to come out as trans. Yay! Yay. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, so you mentioned about being a good immigrant and a good lesbian in order to be a good immigrant. Like, so now that you've decided to embrace more of yourself, do you have any fears about your immigration and your trans identity like jeopardizing that absolutely i mean i've had a name change i've had 
sex marker change, and any changes that you have in immigration, including your address, can delay so much of your process. And I haven't been back in Brazil since I've been here. It's been a little bit over 15 years. Because traveling is... I, I literally don't know what can happen. I don't know if uh, when I come back, I am going to be able to enter the country again, even though I have a green card. But the funny thing is, my green card doesn't match my current name. And my passport has my dead name. And the picture doesn't look anything like me. <laughs> so traveling anywhere is very complicated for me, especially internationally. Luckily, nationally, I only have to deal with the TSA machine being like, who the hell is this person? What is in between their legs? I don't know. I can't compute. Alarm. Uh, but at least my driver's license match my face, match my name, match how I present. So I'm like, okay, I can deal with this. But in terms of immigration, now I'm just going to, they just, going to give an excuse to delay my process, one. And traveling internationally, I already know. I'm going to be questioned. People are going to think I stole someone's passport. I'm going to be put into a room. I already know because I've been there. I've been put into rooms and I've been questioned when I had my quote-unquote advanced parole to travel because that's what it's called. Like you're in prison. Like I'm a criminal. Yeah. When I didn't have the green card, I only had my work permit. They give you advanced parole so you can travel. And that's what I had to have. And I was questioned. Even though all my documents were fine. You know, but... Yeah. It's complicated. Very complicated. So, I don't regret it. And I think it's good that I'm doing this and then they have to deal with it and they have to be confused by it yeah, yeah. let them be confused by it <laughs> complicate their minds yes <laughs> um, what do you love about being trans hmm. wow what I love about being trans wow so many things I it's me so I love myself because I'm trans this is wonderful I love that I get to redefine masculinity in a way that's healthy and not toxic and that I can inspire other trans folks and that I can call out on cis men about their bullshit and that they hopefully can learn to be better men by looking at all this fabulous trans mask non-binary people and be like oh holy shit maybe I'm doing masculinity in a way that's you know not the greatest <laughs> not, the, not that my job is to no. make cis men better because honestly I have so much better things to do than do that but I feel like just by virtue 
virtue of existing and holding conversations that happens automatically. And of course, I have to keep myself accountable as well because, you know, I get some sort of privileges now. I don't get caught called anymore, for example, which is really great. Although I was puppied, there's sometimes I'm puppied, uh, which is fun. <laughs> but it's not the same thing, obviously, as being harassed as a femme presenting person. So I do love that, and I just love the energy of other trans people and being surrounded by them. And I think we do defy a lot of expectations from society and our families and our friends in a way that is very confusing for most people still and will probably continue to be for a while and I love that boldness yeah. of existing in a trans body and mind and soul I think uh, it's also exciting now like being trans is not a new concept and I love like that people are starting to learn more about trans history and like being trans in different cultures and, yeah. oh yeah, yeah. I mean, here we are doing this interview, right? How freaking cool is that? (laughs) (laughs) What do you want to be remembered for? Mm. Just in general? Yeah. I mean, you could narrow it down to one or two things, but like, what do you, what would you like to be remembered for? When, When people think of you, what would they be like? Oh, yeah, they were so, they did this, like, Oh, Rafi, the social justice activist who was so bold and really fucked some shit up and made a lot of people (laughs) uncomfortable. But you know, they were so kind and loving and such a warm community member and they did shit for their community and they changed their communities. That's all I want. I want to make an impact on like communities and I would love to be remembered for that Uh, is there anything else that you want people to know I love you Carrie oh Oh my gosh okay I'm embarrassed no that's wonderful Uh, I love you too um um, uh, okay now I am thinking I am on track Um, yes, thank you very much. <laughs> um, is, there, is there anyone else that you think should be interviewed in this project? Are there... Oh my God, yes. Yeah. Uh, I got the trans contacts to interview that are not American, which is, I would love more of that, yeah. That's great. Thank you very much for participating in this project. And embarrassing me in a <laughs> wonderful way. Um, uh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Thanks to anyone listening. <laughs> See me blush. All right. Cool. <laughs> <laughs>